All right. Well, my name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. Thank you for being here. Uh, we're in a series where we're looking at God's sovereignty. Amen. And the first week we looked at and reminded ourselves that God is sovereign in all human endeavors, including elections. Last week we looked at the fact that God is sovereign and that he does not promise to be fair. He does promise to be just. He does promise to be loving. But fairness left in the garden. And so this week, we're going to begin two weeks tackling essentially the question, did God choose me or did I choose God? Uh, it's a question that I think is critical in the church because it brings us to an understanding of who God is. Now, one of the things that happened, when I became a pastor, I never really, re- like, I really like weddings. Uh, I, um, I didn't realize when I became a pastor that I'd be invited to participate in them. Uh, they, they really are wonderful moments, and they're wonderful when they're centered on Christ. And they're kind of empty when they're not. I only perform weddings between two believers who I know are fully committed to Christ. I love that God came up with the idea of the covenant of marriage. Use that image to describe our salvation. He He wanted us to understand that our relationship with him is like a marriage. There's something holy about two people, a man and a woman, locking eyes and declaring their love for one another, and then their love for Jesus. It's it's beautiful. They tell each other, "I, I could have chosen anyone, but I chose you, because God has chosen us. It's a beautiful thing. Unless, well, let me put it this way, in Texas... We have these things called shotgun weddings. Do you know what a shotgun wedding is? A shotgun wedding is a wedding where somebody is forced to marry somebody else. They're not about free will, they're about survival. Usually the father of the bride's the one packing heat, and the groom is the one feeling it and sweating. The marriage vows aren't really beautiful at all because everyone knows that the young man had no choice. The audience knows it, the father of the bride knows it, the groom knows it, and most sadly, the bride herself knows it. Declaration of love made under duress without free will is not love at all. Throughout Scripture, Jesus has illustrated for us that he's a bridegroom coming for his bride. It's no accident or coincidence that the ancient Jewish wedding ceremony what was designed to show us our relationship with God. It's a beautiful picture, not only of Jesus' love for us, but his plan to return for us. Jesus said in Matthew 9.15, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast. Jesus said, look, I want you to think of me as the bridegroom. I've gone away to prepare a place. And I'm going to come back for you because I love you. I, I'm going to come back. You can, I promise because I love you. Revelation 19.7, let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It is granted for her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The Jewish marriage is a covenant. It's a written, there's actually a written document that defines the covenant between the bride and the groom. It outlines the relationship. 
The Bible is our covenant with our groom. It, it promises, tells us what he will do for us, what he expects from us. In every wedding, there are vows, our promises. In our spiritual relationship with Christ, his vows are in the book. That's what the Bible is. It's a revelation of God's love to us. It is a groom pouring out his love for those that he loves. Sovereign God sent us a letter of love for us. It outlines our relationship with him. It, it's a covenant document. We can, just like a bride, we can accept it or reject it, but his love is pure. But what if, what if our wedding with Christ was more like a shotgun wedding? What if we really had no choice? What if God forced us to marry him spiritually? Does that change things in your mind? Would it matter to you? You'd still be married. You'd still have the security of a covenant. You'd still spend eternity with Jesus. But would it matter to you if you really had no choice? How important is it to you that God not only chose you, but that you also chose him? Is a shotgun covenant still a covenant? Can I force you to a commitment that you made under duress? We've been learning that God is sovereign. We've learned that he doesn't have to be fair. Can sovereign God demand a shotgun wedding? God is sovereign. He has, always has, and always will have absolute control over everything. The only thing God can't do is contradict the very essence of who he is as he's revealed himself in Scripture. We've spoken about God's revelation of himself to us in his word, and this is what we know. We know from God's letter to us that he is before all things that God created all things, that God upholds all things. God is above all things. God can do all things. And God will accomplish all things. We know those to be true. Is when it comes to the control of God, God rules over all things. God is in control of all things. Earthly kings are under God's control. Human events are under God's control. Good angels are under God's control. Evil angels that we call demons are under God's control. Satan is under God's control. Human decisions are under God's control. Human decisions are under God's control. That's a sticky wicket. That's the place where well-meaning Christians start to divide a bit. The scriptures are crystal clear on this point. Scriptures portray God as in sovereign control of everything we choose, including our salvation. Let me show you some scriptures. Now today, I'm going to be putting up, I think it's 44 scriptures. Okay, so they're all, if you want them, you can go online. They're already there, ready to be printed. Um, the reason, again, is you don't need my words, you need God's. So let's run through some of these. Ephesians 1.11, in him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Romans 8.29, for those who he foreknew, 
he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. According to Paul, even as he chooses us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. According to Peter, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. In fact, only those who are elect will believe. Acts 13, 48. And the Gentiles heard this and they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. John 1, 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of will or flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Paul, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on who I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, so that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And if that's not clear enough, Paul gets stronger. So then he has mercy on whoever he wills, and he hardens whoever he wills. God's sovereignty over human decisions involves both those who are for him and those who are against him. Peter quoted Isaiah. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Whatever else can be said, God's sovereignty over human will includes his initiating, pursuing, persuading, and saving grace without which no one would be saved. Romans 3.10. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 1 John 4.19. We love because he first loved us. John 6, 44, no one come to the Father unless the Father, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent him draws him. Every decision that you and I have ever made is under the sovereignty of God. If you, if you want to do, if what you want to do can't be used for God's purposes in a good way, you won't be able to do it. He allows even dumb things to carry out his will. Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. If what you and I decide to do fits in God's will, even our sins, then he allows it. He's allowed every horrible thing on earth, starvation, rape, holocaust, because he knew he could use it for good. Okay, you might be thinking, those scriptures suggest that I'm involved in some kind of shotgun relationship. But God chose me and I had no choice. Okay, so why blame me then? Do I have free will or not? Did God choose me or did I choose him? And if God's in control of everything, why should I be blamed for anything? If an all-knowing God knows exactly what we're going to do before we do it, and he can't be wrong, then it happens regardless of what we do. 
If God is in control of all events, then how, how can we be responsible for anything that happens? Even our evil actions. It seems that if he's sovereign, then what happens is his responsibility, not mine. So when it comes to my salvation, did I make a decision or not? It seems the scriptures presented that God chose me, that I couldn't save myself, that I couldn't do anything, that God in his sovereignty decided who he would save and thus who he would not save. Is my relationship with Christ predestined? Is it determined by God in advance, even before I was born, even before the world was made? Did God decide that I would be one of his elect? I mean, if I'm left to my own devices and no one seeks God, did I pursue God or did he pursue me? Did I even have the ability to choose God? I've heard my entire life I have to make a decision to follow Jesus. I sang a song that says, I have decided to follow Jesus. Isn't the decision to follow Jesus the very evidence of my faith? If God pre-selected me and he's sovereign, could I have said no? Did I make a decision at all? If God has some people as his elect, those he predestined, and others aren't his elect, did he elect for them to reject Jesus? Could Judas have made a decision not to betray Jesus, or was his fate sealed before he was born? If I was chosen to reject God before my birth, how can I be held accountable for a decision that seems to have been God's, not mine? How can I be sent to hell for eternal punishment for something that I didn't have any control over? I understand God doesn't have to be fair, but that's not just. Sending people to hell for all of eternity because they rejected Jesus, because God didn't select them, isn't just unfair, it's unjust. And it's unloving. If God created people who had no chance of salvation, no ability to seek him or to surrender to him, how could a just God sentence them to hell? He created them as rebellious. They did what he had predetermined they would do. How could they be responsible for that? Judas should be praised for fulfilling the very purpose that God had for his life. Yet scriptures say it would have been better if he'd never been born. If Judas never could have accepted Christ, and if he's destined to hell before he's ever born, it would have been better if God hadn't created him. If God knows that, if he knows that he's created people who are against him, how can he look at his creation and say it's very good? How can he say man is created in his image when he can't reject himself? If God is sovereign, if God pre-selected those he chose to save, then why even share the gospel? If everything's been predetermined, why, why do we go around the world telling people about Jesus? And if everything's predetermined, I'm either saved or I'm not, and it has nothing to do with me. Sovereign God doing what sovereign God wants to do. So if I'm predestined to be saved, I can't do anything wrong. My sins are forgiven. I can do anything I want to do. If I'm predestined to go to hell, then the only good experience I have, I need to pursue every impulse on earth while I'm here because after this is not good. 
If God pre-selected some to be saved and others to go to hell, then Jesus didn't really die for everybody. He only died for those that God wanted to save. If that's true, then Satan won. Jesus didn't overcome all the sin in the world at the cross, only the sin of those that God pre-selected. He didn't offer forgiveness to everybody. He just saved the people that God predestined would be saved. Is that right? I mean, if these verses about predetermination are all there is, then John 3.16 should say, For God so loved some of the world that he gave his only son, that whoever was pre-chosen to believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. If that's true, Satan won. The majority of people got exactly what Satan wanted. Lots of people separated from God. Jesus unable to overcome all the sins of the world because he only died for a select few. Yet the scriptures clearly say what they say. We just read them. Those he foreknew, those he predestined, those he selected before their birth. Welcome to the dilemma of predestination versus free will. Did God choose me or did I choose him? Did I make a decision to follow Jesus? Or did I do what I was determined to do, pre-programmed to do, predetermined to do before I was ever created? This question has been challenging theologians since the beginning of the early church, and it's one of the mysteries of Scripture, and it's one of the mysteries of God. How does God's sovereign will match up with man's relatively free will? It perplexes people who truly love Jesus. Today, we're going to call it the battle between the Calvinists and the Arminians. So let me give you a little history lesson. John Calvin lived from 1509 to 1564. He is credited with the idea that we are all predestined, that God chose us ahead of time. He taught five what he called irrefutable truths that are known by the acronym TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. And it goes like this. T stands for total depravity. Calvin says that humans are incapable of any spiritual good. They're totally incapable of initiating, attaining, or even receiving the gift of salvation without the grace of God. U stands for unconditional election. There is no condition for God electing some for salvation. He chooses Period. Some get it, some he chooses not to. Limited atonement. Jesus didn't die for everybody, he only died for the elect. God created two groups of people, good people and bad people. Determined before they were ever born, good people are going to be God's elect, he's going to love them, they can't do anything about it, they are his, he's going to bring them to him, they have no choice in the matter, there's no such thing as free will from a human standpoint when it comes to salvation. The other group is over here, and before they were ever born, they were created for the sole purpose of living on earth, causing problems, and going to hell for all of eternity, based on God's sovereignty. I stands for irresistible grace. Once God chooses you, Calvin says, you have no ability to resist. In other words, if you were chosen before you were born, in your lifetime, you cannot reject God. You have no decision in it. This is the shotgun wedding clause. You will agree to have a relationship with Jesus. 
stands for perseverance of the saints. Once you're saved, you're always saved because you were saved before you were born. So Calvinists believe that we're all here on earth for God's purposes. Some are here to honor God and live thankful lives for his grace and salvation. Others are here waiting to go to hell, serving God's purposes by being used as an alternative negative example. In other words, the bad people on earth are here to help us good people understand how good we are. They believe that there's no human decision to follow God because we're so fallen, there's nothing in us that makes us want to seek God. And we have no ability to recognize or desire God on our own. God's sovereignty has chosen his elect. In his sovereignty, he decides to reveal himself. The elected person cannot resist. The elected person is saved and can take no credit for any of that decision. Salvation is all God's. Prompting, pursuing, revelation, response, regeneration, all God's work in his select few who he has pre-chosen. Believers didn't decide it, choose it, or even desire it. It just happened to them. And it happened because God said so, and God is sovereign in all human decisions, including salvation. Jesus paid for the sins of the elect, not for the sins of everyone. Some are saved, others are used, all to fulfill God's overall purpose and plan for mankind, because he's sovereign. Famous Calvinists, Charles Spurgeon, John Newton, Jonathan Edwards, Martin Luther, Matthew Henry, George Whitefield, Mark Driscoll, and John Piper. Another man who was actually Calvin's student, or a student of Calvin's work, he wasn't really a student, because he was four years old when Calvin died. But he took Calvin's work and he began to examine it. His name was Jacob Arminius. He lived in the 16th century as well. Arminianism places the emphasis on man's responsibility and claims that he has complete free will when it comes to the decision about God. He'll begin to question his understanding of the doctrine of predestination. He began to look at Calvin's work, and he said, that's not what I see in Scripture. That's not the nature and character of the God I see revealed in Scripture. He thought predestination was too harsh for a loving God. And he began to promote what he called conditional election, that both God and man play a part in the decision. Similar to the tulip concept, Jacob Arminius came up with five points as well, but he wasn't wise enough to make an acronym. The first point he makes is human free will. It's also referred to as partial depravity. The belief states that man is depraved due to the fall. In other words, we're all created sinners. All of us, and I'll use this example over and over, are on a conveyor belt going to hell. And we all deserve to be on the conveyor belt because we've been judged guilty and we are guilty and the punishment of our sin is death. Every one of us rejects God because we had the choice to do it or not do it and we're on a conveyor belt going to hell. And then God and his sovereignty reveals himself to people okay, as they're going. Okay? It, it may not be fair, but it's just because he's saving some. 
Arminians claim that though people are fallen, they still have something in them that seeks God. Even though no one is righteous, no one honors God, even though the scripture is correct, that all have fallen and none are worthy of God, Arminius would say there are something inside of people that makes them seek God. A Calvinist would say, no, they're too fallen. They're too far gone. They were created to reject him. Nothing in them seeks God. Arminian says, no, there's a human free will part of this. Conditional election is the second point. Conditional election states that God only chooses those who he knows will choose to believe. Okay, in other words, God, knowing everything, looks around the world, and he knows who's going to believe and who's not, because he knows everything. The belief said that God looks down the long hallway of time to a future, and he knows who's going to choose him and who's not going to, and those are the elect. Let me give you an example, and we'll bring this up several times in the next two weeks. Suppose we're watching a football game, or you're watching a football game, and you watch it today, and you wanted to watch it with me, but I couldn't come, so you watched it today. Tomorrow, we're going to watch it on TV, recorded, okay? You and I are going to have two different experiences. You know the outcome, I don't, okay? But the fact that you know the outcome doesn't change the free will of the players as they played the game yesterday, that make sense? In other words, just because you know the outcome doesn't mean they didn't have the free will to tackle or not tackle or run or, or kick or whatever. It was their choice to do what they believed was free will. You just happened to have access to the end result. Arminius would say the elect are those God knows will eventually select him. Not because God predestined it, not because they had no choice, but because God knows the outcome of the event. Universal atonement is the third one, also known as unlimited atonement. This says that Jesus, when he went to the cross, died for everybody, even those who are not the elect. In other words, God, looking through time, knew who would choose him and who wouldn't, but he paid the price for everybody because he's just. He revealed himself to everybody because he's just. If he revealed himself partially to somebody and fully to somebody else and this person rejected him, that's unjust, right? So in order for his justice to be fair, he's got to offer everything to everybody and let them in and of themselves choose or not choose. Universal atonement says that Jesus' death on the cross was for all humanity and that anyone can be saved simply by believing. His fourth point is resistible grace. This teaches that the grace of God can be resisted. That you can keep saying no to the Holy Spirit until you succumb to salvation, until you decide. He says that God inwardly calls people who are called outwardly. That God does everything he can possibly do to bring a sinner to salvation but man can thwart that and harden himself to God and choose not to be involved in the marriage. His fifth point is what's called fall from grace. He believes that a person can be saved and then lose their salvation. He believes that happens when they fail in their faith, they create a grievous sin, but no one really knows how many sins or what it takes to lose that. Most Arminians debate this point strongly. 
if Arminians are going to waver, this is where they waver. Many, many, many Arminians, myself included, believe that you can't lose your salvation, and we've been through that before, but I can certainly go back through that. Let me show you some scriptures. Um, because here's my, let me just explain this. In the church, we love arguing over extremes. Theologians love to do this. Well, it can't be all God's will, and it can't be all man's will, because then man's sovereign and God's not. But if God's not, we do this all the time. Okay? I can tell you, at least in my opinion, in almost every one of those circumstances, the answer is not here, and it's not here. These are the areas where Satan plays. The scriptural answer is almost always in the middle. And that's what we're going to talk about. But in order for you to understand what the dilemma is, I need to show you some scriptures. Because it's really not up to me to tell you. It's up for you to explore the scriptures and decide for yourself. Many, many churches are full of people who are fully Calvinists. Many, many people go to churches that are fully more in the Arminian flair. Most Christian churches in America, if you looked at it, they're not over here, they're not over here. The midline is here, and they swing a bit towards Arminianism, sometimes a lot. Let's look at some scriptures. Matthew 3, 1. In those days, John the Baptist came in the wilderness preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent literally means to make a decision to turn from what you're doing and turn back. It involves a decision, a choice, a human decision. Acts 3.19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord that he may send the Christ appointed to you, Jesus. 1 John 3.22, and this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he's commanded us. John 5.39, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. All of these scriptures imply there's a decision to make that people are accountable for the decision they choose to make. John 1.11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, a decision. But to those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John 3.14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever, whoever, all-encompassing believes in him, may have eternal life. Acts 16.30, he brought them out and said, sirs, what must we do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Romans 10.8, but what does it say? The word is near to you, in your mouth and in your heart. That's the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses 
and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Because there is no distinction between Jews and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10, 14. How will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how will they believe in him of whom they never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Luke 7, 29. When all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves. Revelation twenty two seventeen. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who's thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Offered to everyone. John seven thirty seven. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rows of living water. Matthew 23, 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. You were not willing. 1 Timothy 2, 3, this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of the Lord our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Isaiah 45, 22, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. John 5, 33, you sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. Now that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. 2 Corinthians 5, 19, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore on your behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. We're appealing that you make a decision. Hebrews 2.9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he may taste death for everyone. 2 Peter 3.9. For the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, wishing that none should perish, that all should reach repentance. John 16, 8, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Matthew 22, 1, and that Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, the kingdom of heaven is to be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son, and he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the feast, but they would not come. Ezekiel 33.10, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Isaiah 65.12, I will destined you to the sword, and all of you shall bow down to the slaughter, because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not listen, but you did what was evil in my eyes, and you chose what I did not delight in. Jeremiah 18, 7, if at any time I declare to turn in a nation or kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster I intended to do it. 
Joshua 24, 15. If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day who you will serve. Whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river, the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Luke 10, I'm sorry, Luke 22, 41. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and he prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus himself made a free will decision to surrender to the Father. John 10, 17, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up. This charge I have received from my Father. I have a free will choice to go to the cross or not. If Jesus did not have free will to choose what the Father wanted him to do, Satan never would have taken him to the wilderness to tempt him. Free will is taught throughout the Bible. God calls on his people to obey, choose, and believe in him. These things would be nonsense if we didn't have the ability to choose. The very fact that we can sin implies we have freedom of the will. Otherwise, and we'll get into this in a minute, God had to create sin. Because if you continue to ask the questions and there is no free will, then where did sin come from? That's a question. Did God create Lucifer to fall? If so, God created sin. God can't create sin. It violates his character. The only way sin can enter the world is if somebody had the free will not to sin. We'll get into that. God judges us. Humans are rewarded and punished according to their actions. Judgment only makes sense if we're able to choose and then culpable for our decisions. God tests his people, which implies our ability to pass or fail. God pleads, pleads, pleads with sinners to repent and make sense and draw back to him so they can be saved. Repentance in and of itself is a decision, a choice. God desires that all men believe in him. Think about this. An all-powerful God desires something that's clearly not happening. Let's think about that for a minute. It's God's desire that everyone is saved. Is everyone saved? No. Yet God is all-powerful. Right? How can God be all-powerful Desire that everyone is saved, and yet many are not. They have to have free will. Otherwise, it makes no sense. Famous Arminians, John Wesley, A.W. Tozer, Andrew Murray, David Wilkerson, C.S. Lewis, and Billy Graham. I reviewed with you a great number of scriptures I did it for a reason. Every one of those scriptures is straight from the word of God. Whether they are scriptures that clearly say God chose us, which we read, or scriptures that say we clearly have a choice, it's not either or, it's both. It's not like some scriptures are not true. 
and other scriptures are true. It's not some are less true and others are more true. It's not that I like these and I don't like these. It's all God's word. It all is true. Period. Whether there's scriptures that clearly say God chose us or scriptures that clearly say that when we're aware of his truth, when he makes us aware of that, we choose him, they're all true. The critical thing to remember is that every one of these scriptures is absolutely 100% certified true God's word. Every point made by extreme Calvinists to make their point is God's word. Every point made by extreme Arminians to make their point is God's word. All the scriptures used by Arminians are true. All the scriptures used by Calvinists are true. As with most things in human life, we've recently seen it in politics, we see it in a lot of things, where humans make their mistake is at the extreme of events. It's the extremists that tend to lose focus. It's the extremists that tend to move away from truth. God's word is clear that he chose us before we were born. And in some manner, we chose him when we responded to his love in free will. Calvinists have a sovereign God and an inactive man. Arminians have an inactive God and an active man, sovereign man. It's impossible for us to fully understand what this means. It's impossible. It's too great for us. The relationship between God's sovereignty and man's free will and responsibility, only God truly understands how they work together. But with this doctrine, probably more than any other, it is critical to admit our inability to fully grasp the nature of God and our relationship with him. Going too far either direction gives us a distorted view of what God wanted us to see about salvation. Yet the extreme is exactly where many in the churches are today. There are two very strong movements in the church today that I believe are false teaching because they only use certain scriptures and they're at the extremes. Any teaching that weighs one scripture dramatically more than another when there's equal evidence for truth, is leaning in the wrong direction. And any theology that forces you to discount some scripture and accept others is a false theology. Extreme Calvinism is now known more as Reformed theology. You'll hear people talk about Reformed theology. Not every Reformed theologic church is extreme Calvinist, but they tend to move in the Calvinist direction, and there are plenty of churches out there that are way over on the Calvinist side. The other extreme in Arminianism is called new theism. New theism. Reformed theology and new theism, do you notice something? They both promote a new revelation, a new way of looking at things, something previously not seen, or maybe something previously seen but now brought back up. We were warned about some of this stuff. funny that they call it new, but it originates to the 1500s. And even Calvinist ideas go back to the first century. But now they're new and improved. 
Here's what's happened. Many are concerned that the Arminian churches have gone too far, that they've placed too much emphasis on man's free will choice and ignored the sovereignty of God. In other words, what they're concerned about, a Calvinist would say, I believe, is that some of the churches have gone so far to the Arminian side, free will side, that they've completely ignored that God is sovereign. Okay? They made man responsible for his salvation. They've made the decision man makes as the most important thing in their life. And they believe that the church has swung way too far giving man authority that God never gave them. That's their heart. It's a good heart. I agree with them. There are churches that have elevated man and man's decision-making to an unbiblical point. If you take Arminianism to the extreme, you end up with humanism. I'm saved because God chose, I chose God. It's all up to me. I'm in total control of my destiny. I'm a sinner, but I choose God of my own free will. He has to respond to my choice. Because you see, I'm really sovereign and he's not. That's a scary place to be. When God gave us free will, an Arminian would say, he, an extreme Arminian would say, he gave up some of his sovereignty. This is common in the churches, so pay attention to it. Here's how the, the logic goes. God gave us free choice, but the only way he could give us free choice is to give up some of his sovereignty. Okay, now that alone should send you to the door. Here's what they say. He wants us to make a decision in free will, but he doesn't know what that decision's gonna be. So he reacts after we make decisions. That God is reacting to us. That he waits for us to do something and then he reacts to that because he doesn't know what we're gonna choose because he gave up some of his sovereignty and gave it to us. That is the most dangerous crap you could teach people from a pulpit, I believe. The risk of Arminianism is that it puts human free will over God's sovereignty, okay? New Arminian takes away his sovereignty. It's unbiblical because it, de it de denies what God has revealed about himself. We just spent two weeks on his sovereignty. In addition, it's clear that some Calvinists have gone way too far the other direction. They've seen the Arminians dismiss the Bible and swing towards human power, and their desire is to bring back God's sovereignty to the church. And it's a good desire. It's, it's, a, it's a desire I have. I want God's sovereignty and God's truth to come back into the church. The new focus on extreme Calvinism is sweeping through churches, and it's been particularly embraced by the next generation, the younger Christians. Why do they embrace it, in my opinion? They don't know all of Scripture, and it takes away any responsibility. I'll stop there. Reformed theology, the Calvinist extreme, makes man a pawn in God's game. It gives no, man no say in their relationship with God. A gift, perhaps, by God given to you, perhaps not. It's a gift that you receive that you can't deny. You can't resist it. It's a gift not based on love, but on God's sovereignty. You don't receive salvation. It's forced upon you whether you want it or not. Reformed theology 
new Calvinism takes away man's free will. It's unbiblical because it takes away God's love for people, our free will decision to sin, and his judgment and punishment for sin. Both are dangerous. By saying we don't have free will, the Calvinist removes human responsibility for sin. And then we have to ask the question, if man doesn't have free will, where did sin come from? One thing every theologian agrees upon is that sin cannot originate from God. It it violates his character, it violates who he is. Not who we say he is, but who he has revealed himself to be. I am righteous and holy. Sin has no place in me. He can't be the origin of sin. We know that in Hebrews 6.18. He can't even look upon sin with approval. God can't tempt anyone. And opposites can't be true at the same time. God can't be good and not good. God can't be himself and against himself at the same time in the same sense. And if God can't create sin, then we have to ask ourselves, where did it come from? We know from Scripture that sin came from an angel named Lucifer, who was God's favorite angel. He was gifted among all others. He was a musician. He was part of the heavenly chorus. He was part of heaven that God had made good. He chose pride over God's sovereignty because he had free will. He wasn't created without free will. Because God wanted his beings, when they worship him, to be worshiping him holy and appropriately. You can't worship something that you got a gun to your head on. Lucifer had a free will choice to sin, and he chose pride, and the scriptures tell us that's where sin originated. Scriptures tell us that God only made good creatures, that he gave free choice to some of his good creatures, and that free choice is the origin of evil. God wanted his good creatures to choose good, but in order to give them the choice, the free will, he had to allow sin as a possibility. Thus, he had a plan for what would happen when man rejects him and chooses sin. But Calvinists can't tell you where sin came from. They don't have an answer. They call it one of the mysteries of God that is higher than our ways. They can't attribute sin to God And they can't give people free will. So sin apparently just showed up somewhere, somehow. And this, to me, is where extreme Calvinism completely falls apart. If you can't explain the origin of sin, can't hold man accountable for sin, can't state that all humans are created in the image of God, can't explain how people who never choose to sin but were created to do nothing else can be sent to hell for all of eternity... And that God is love, but only loves his elect. That Jesus died not only for the elect, only for the elect. If that was all true, and hear me really clearly. If it was true that God chose me before I was born, that the God I know created people who in and of themselves did nothing against him and sentenced them to eternity in hell, Simply because he chose them for that purpose, I would walk away from the faith. 
There's no way. Because God can be unfair. We talked about that. He can't be unjust. And he can't be unloving. Of course, Calvinists would tell me the good news is I couldn't walk away because I'm saved. God reveals himself to us as just, righteous, loving, patient, kind, long-suffering. He tells us that man's created in his image, and when he finishes creating man, he says it's all good. Very good. If Adam and Eve did not have free will, then God chose them to sin. Right? He put a tree in the garden. He said, don't choose, but you're going to choose because I created you to reject me. So if they didn't have free will, then they were created evil. God can't look at a creation that he calls good if he created beings that are against himself, destined to sin because they weren't chosen. None of the scriptures make sense to me if you take away free will of man. The God that I know wants everybody to be saved. The Christ that I know died for everybody. And he said its desire, his desire, is that everyone is saved. So the Calvinist at the extreme is, in my humble, simple, uneducated opinion, heresy. The Arminian at the extreme is my humble, uneducated opinion, also heresy. I get emails from people who are checking out our church and they ask me, are y'all Calvinist or Arminian? It's a really common question. And I tell them, we're Calvinians. We're Calvinians, yeah, that's what we are. We're Calvinians. We believe that God chose us and we chose him. And it's a wonderful place to be. Because it's in that sweet spot that I feel and experience the love of God that I know. Next week, we're going to explore that middle ground, that sweet spot. I'm going to give you a balanced view of what I believe is the accurate interpretation of the scriptures we looked at to help us understand the beauty of God's design, how he chose us. Loving, just, righteous God chose us to be saved. And we, with free will given to us by God, and prompted by the Holy Spirit, chose him. Jesus described his relationship with us as a marriage, a beautiful, wonderful covenant between man and God based on our faith in Jesus. Salvation is a wonderful moment in our lives when everything makes sense. It's a new covenant. It's a new marriage vow between Christ and man. Jesus from the cross pours out his overwhelming love, floods us, drenches us, and tells us, I love you and I chose you. And we, full of love for him, a true love that only he can give us, with our free will, tell him, I love you too. And I choose you. For a covenant to be valid, both parties have to have the ability to choose. Without free will, there's no covenant. If we don't have free will to select God, then, 
there's no valid covenant. If I put a gun to your head and make you sign a document, that document's not valid. There's no shotgun weddings when it comes to Christ. He does not force anyone to choose him. That is why the relationship we have with him is so incredible. Can you be imagine being married to your spouse, knowing that however many years ago they were threatened into it? That's not love. It's sick. Next week we close this series looking at the beautiful, balanced, and I believe biblical view of our covenant with God regarding our salvation. It is one of the most important things that we as believers have to not only understand, but celebrate and worship. Our God wants a covenant relationship with us. And he gave us the free will to say no. The way I know someone loves me is when they have the choice not to and they still choose. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you do love us. I thank you that every word in your Bible is true, whether I understand it or not. I recognize, God, that my responsibility is to teach the truth as I believe you've revealed it. I don't have the answers here. I know the scriptures. I see both points. But I know that you didn't desire that the scriptures would drive us away from you. They would drive us to you. So God, I pray for all of us that we're just aware that um, once we get to the extreme of theology, Satan is putting wind in our sails to try to move us towards humanism or towards extreme reformed theology. And God, we're, we're told to take in counsel of your full word, all of it. So God, you probably laugh at us when we sit here and try to understand all that you've revealed, but the truth is you have revealed to us enough for us to know. So we pursue your truth through the guidance of your Holy Spirit who reveals all things. God, I thank you that you chose us. And I thank you that in some way, not because we're sovereign, but because we're humble, broken sinners, we chose you. We celebrate that. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. 